Uh, but I'd like us to open our Bibles tonight to Ephesians 2. And we're going to start there uh, because as you can see there on your message guide, if you did get one, we're going to do a little review first uh, before we get into our next mini-series on the third enemy that we face as Christians. Of course, in Ephesians 2, we actually have all three of those spiritual enemies listed for us or described for us in one way or fashion. And of course, those enemies, as we've already looked at, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find the Apostle Paul saying, that you hath he quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. It's one of our enemies. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's another one of our enemies that we were introduced to last Sunday. He is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we've had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, that's our third enemy, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So get a little different order than we're used to, but we have all three enemies listed there, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the course of this world. The devil is the prince of the power of the air, and the flesh deals with the lusts of our flesh, and even the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And at the very beginning of our series this year, I mentioned that it was these three enemies that caused the old English Puritans to write the prayer in their 1549 Book of Common Prayer that includes these words, from all deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. And that certainly is what we still need to pray in times like these. But before we start looking at our enemy, the devil, who Martin Luther described as our ancient foe, and I know that last Sunday night we ended the service with that famous hymn, though still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. I'd like us to do a quick review of how we are to fight against the other two foes that we've already looked at, because they're integral with this other foe, which really started them all. So again, real quick, to fight the foe of this world and its worldliness, we considered five things that we need to remember. Five things to remember in our fight against the world. The first thing that we need to remember is that we have been sent into this world by the Lord Jesus. We've been sent. We're not just to be part of this world like everybody else in this world. We're sent into this world. We saw this in Jesus' prayer to his Father in John 17, 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, Jesus says, even so have I also sent them into the world. We need to remember that in our fight against the world. The second thing we need to remember is that we need to pursue biblical separation from this world. Again, this should be nothing new to us. We've looked at this already. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a good example of this when he said in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. In other words, there's a, a mutual crucifixion going on between Christians and the world, and the world and Christians, which ought to show that there's a distinction between us and the world, a difference between us and the world, a separation between us and the world. And we need to remember that in our fight against the world. The third thing we need to remember is that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. If you remember back in Genesis, Abraham described himself as a stranger and as a sojourner. 
And sometimes we live as if this is all there is, that, that this life is all there is, that this country is all there is, that our citizenship is here in this world. But that's not how Abraham lived. And if we're the children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham, we too are strangers and pilgrims and sojourners in this world. And we need to remember that in our fight against this world. The fourth thing that we need to remember is that we are meant to be spectacles unto the world. Yes, as Christians, spectacles. This is how the Apostle Paul described himself and the other apostles back in 1 Corinthians 4.9 when he says, we are made a spectacle or a, a kind of theater unto the world and angels and to men. And so we are to show forth to this world a different kind of theater. We're to show to the world Christ. And certainly that is a challenge for us when we think about our own walk and our own life and our own day-to-day -day situations. Am I a theater to the world in which the world, when they look at me, sees Christ? We need to remember this in our fight against the world. And of course, the fifth thing that we need to remember is that we are to live as saints in this world. In Titus 2.11, we learn that the gospel teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, in this present age. And so even as we pray for the Lord to deliver us from this present evil world, we need to pursue holiness in all of these ways and to show the world that the Lord has made and is making a big difference in our lives. He's making us holy. That is, we're being set more and more apart to Christ and away from the world. And so as we remember these things, we can experience greater victory in our battles against that first enemy that we've looked at, the world. But then our second sort of mini-series was dealing with the fight against the foe of our flesh. And to fight against the foe of our flesh, we looked at six weapons, six weapons in our spiritual arsenal that are at disposal, as we depend on the Lord and dwell with his Holy Spirit in a day-by-day -day basis. If you remember, the first weapon is the weapon of denial. Now, this doesn't mean that you are in denial, but rather you deny the desires of your flesh more and more. Those, not, the, not the ones that you can honor God through, but the ones that are of your fallen flesh that want to draw you away from God's plan for your body and for your life. And that's why Paul says in Romans 13, 14, to make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That is, you don't put yourself in situations or place things in front of you that you know will tempt you when you're dealing with a situation that you're struggling with, with the desires and the lusts of your flesh. You don't make provision for it. That's just one of the weapons of our warfare in fighting against the flesh. But again, we don't do it in our own strength. We must depend on the Lord, dwell with the Spirit, just like we saw this morning. We need the Lord as we use this weapon in our work. For the second weapon is the weapon of detesting our flesh with a holy hate. That doesn't mean that we hate ourselves, but we hate the fallen nature that we still possess in this world. Hating even the very garments spotted by the flesh. Knowing that there are things that our flesh contaminate or that contribute to our flesh that we need to detest, despise, and get rid of. The third weapon is the weapon of discarding that old, old flesh. Uh, again, the picture that we find in the New Testament is putting off the old man and then putting on the new man. 
Just like you would get dressed in the morning. You, you put off the old garments and you put on the new, new garments. And the old garments is the old flesh and the new garment is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The fourth weapon is the weapon of decontamination, of decontaminating our flesh like we're told to do in 2 Corinthians 7.1, and use all the means that God has given to, to us to cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In other words, when we recognize that we are contaminated because of our sinful desires and our sinful flesh, we use what God has provided to us to cleanse ourselves. That is, prayer, asking God's forgiveness, right? Um, the ordinances that God has given to us. They're a means for us to, to grow in purity and to grow in holiness as we remember what Jesus Christ did for us when we take the Lord's Supper. There are various means that God has given to us to cleanse ourselves in, this, in using this weapon of decontamination of our flesh. The fifth weapon is the weapon of destruction. Uh, the, the term for it in Romans 8 is mortification. That is to literally kill off those fallen members of our flesh. Again, we're not talking about our physical members, but rather our fallen spiritual members because of what we find in Romans 8.13. Paul says, if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit you mortify, you kill off those fallen, sinful deeds of the body, you shall live. I think Jesus put it very clearly that when we struggle against our flesh, sometimes there needs to, pay, needs to be some drastic action. You know, he says, if your if you're, eye offends you, to pluck it out. If your hand offends you, to cut it off. And, and certainly he's not talking about your physical members, but he's talking about taking drastic action when you're faced with these destructive forces of the flesh. And then the sixth weapon, which we considered a couple weeks ago, is the weapon simply of just disposal, which is putting yourself at the disposal of God. We need to learn to dispose and to yield our flesh to God completely and wholeheartedly. And certainly a good way for that is just what we say. Search me, O God. What a, what a precious song that is. Search me, O God. And as you search me, help me to take whatever I have, whatever I am, and surrender it and submit it completely to you. Put myself and even my own fallen flesh at your disposal, Lord, to yield to him. These are the ways that we can experience even more victory in our battles against our own fallen flesh. Again, never apart from depending on the Lord and dwelling with his spirit. Well, the reason why the world and the flesh are such great enemies to our souls is because they remain under the power of this third enemy, which is the devil himself. And even though over the course of the next few months, we will be looking at and learning more about the devil in various ways, it's probably good for us to see how the devil first became our enemy all the way back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me, if you're not already there, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, where we have a real historical account of our earliest parents meeting with the devil for the first time in the form of a serpent. 
And our text will be Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, where we have these inspired words from God. Genesis 3, verse 1, where we're told, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And that is when the world and the flesh became our enemy along with the devil. Now, even though this may be a familiar story to most of us, there are a lot of people in this world who've never heard this story, and yet, this provides the answer to so many questions that have been asked since the very beginning of time. And that is, how is there evil in this world? We think about what just took place in Israel just over the last 24 hours. It's causing people to think, how is there such evil in this world? This is the answer. It's because the world and the flesh and the evil that comes from the fallenness in this world came from the devil tempting man in the garden at this time. But not only does this provide the answer as to why the world and the flesh have become such enemies to this world, it also provides the answer as to why the world and the flesh have become such great enemies to us as God's people. It's because the devil came to Eve in the garden to deceive her and attempt her to sin against God. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this. He says this about believers in the church. He says, we are not ignorant of his, that is the devil's devices. We are not ignorant of his devices, which are simply his thoughts and his ways of doing things. You know, just like uh, when you, you know, go to Best Buy or, Micro Center, there's a new Micro Center. If you need a new computer or anything like that, you can go to these places to get your devices, right? Computers and printers and, and phones and all of these things. And, and those devices we use as tools in our lives to make things easier. There are tools that the devil uses in order to deceive and attempt God's people, just like he did back here in the Garden of Eden. And Paul says, we're not ignorant of these devices. But I wonder if Paul was alive today, could he write the same thing and really have the same assumption about the church today? Are we not ignorant of the devil's devices or have we become ignorant of the devil's devices? Because even though the devil is very subtle and very deceptive, as we're going to learn a little bit more tonight, we also can realize he's not very original. We can know the devil's devices. We can know how he deceives. We can know how he tempts. 
because he continues to use the same devices that he did in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. So our purpose for learning more about the devil as our enemy is not just to satisfy our curiosity. Our goal is to learn more about his devices so that we might do better at what James tells us to do in James 4, 7, to resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is not just to be an academic exercise of the origins of the devil. It's so that we know his devices and we can resist those devices so that he will flee from us and we can have greater victory over the devil from his deception and temptation. And so we first meet the devil in the Garden of Eden there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as he poses himself as a serpent, which was under his possession, more subtle, it says, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And even though he, we might have many questions about the possession of the snake, how did it happen? How could he speak through the snake? Why and how did Eve listen to the snake? It simply begins with a devil in the form of a serpent speaking to Eve using words that were as crooked as his body. And so the first main way and the first main device that the devil uses to deceive and to tempt us, excuse me, <clears throat> is to question God's word. Is to question God's word. The very first thing out of his mouth in verse 2 are those familiar words, Yea, hath God said? Another way of putting that is, Did really God say what you think he said? To question God's word. That's one of the devil's devices. In fact, it's still one of the most frequent devices the devil uses to keep people away from the truth about God and even the truth from God. He questions the very truth of his word because the devil knows both the purity and the power of God's word. The devil knows God's word even better than we do. He knows that it's pure. Uh, he knows that what Jesus said in John 17, 17 is true. Thy word is truth. He even knows that God's words are powerful words, like Paul says in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And since the devil knows this about God's word, he wants to keep us away from the power and purity of God's word. And so he causes us to question it. He tries to get us to question it. And do you realize that the devil knows that you know these same truths about God's word? And so he keeps on using this device to get even God's people to question his word. Hath God said, did he really say what we think he said? To cause us to doubt his word and to keep us from its purity and from its power. That is one of the devil's devices, to question God's word. But another way, a second way that the devil uses to deceive and tempt us is to question, again, God's will. God's will. This is what he does also there in verse 2 when he continues to ask Eve. Again, half God said, questioning God's word. But then to question God's will, he asks, that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Another way of putting that is, did God really tell you that you may not eat from every tree? Now, obviously, we know that that's not what God said at all. 
But again, the devil is trying to sow seeds of discontentment and seeds of deception into the mind of Eve to make her question whether God really did say what he said to her. But of course, we know that when God did speak to Adam and God did speak to Eve and even put Adam and Eve into the garden back in chapter 2, verse 15, he put them in the garden to dress it and to keep it. Again, it was a, a garden full of trees and fruit-bearing trees at that and now the devil wants them to think, and especially Eve, to think that God is keeping her from enjoying the fruits of their labor. Did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees that you are actively dressing and keeping? <laughs> I mean, isn't the laborer worthy of his hire? Isn't the one that is working in the fruit able to eat and, per and partake of that fruit? <clears throat> The devil wanted Eve to think that God and his will for them was anything but good, but instead was arbitrary and capricious. Even as John Gill once wrote, he says, the devil wanted them to think that a God of such goodness, <clears throat> how could a God of such goodness ever deny you such a benefit or restrain you from such happiness? He can never be your friend that can lay such an injunction on you as if you cannot eat of any of the fruit of the tree that he is making you tend. This also is one of the devil's favorite devices. Not only to keep unbelievers under his spell, but even to cause believers to doubt the goodness of God and the goodness of his will. To make us think that this is not the best that we can have. That God wants to withhold the best from us. In some arbitrary way, of course, at this point, Eve knows better. He didn't say we couldn't eat of every tree. I know God's word. I know God's will. And so in verses 2 and 3, Eve even tries to correct what she thinks is the serpent's misunderstanding of God's word to her and Adam. <laughs> that was certainly the right thing to do. Eve was right to fight against the devil's words with God's words. And of course, that's what Jesus himself did when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, over and over again, when the devil would say something, Jesus would fight right back with his own words. But the devil would not back down. So after using the device of questioning God's word and questioning God's will, he would not rest until he had his prey, and so he uses another one of his devices, and that is to question even God's wisdom. To question God's wisdom. Because there in verse 4, if you notice, the devil, the serpent, even outright con contradicts what God tells Adam and Eve back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. If you go back there for a moment, God says in chapter 2, verse 16, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Remember the devil was saying, wait a second. That's not what God told you. But no, God says, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, except for one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what God says to Adam and Eve. That's it when it deals with this, this tree. And now, come back to verse 4 of chapter 3, the devil says directly, contradicting God and his word, ye shall not surely die. It's as if to say, 
God doesn't know what he's talking about. He says you will surely die, but I say you will not surely die. Who are you going to believe? Now, even though what the devil says is a direct contradiction to what God says, he wants Eve to question the wisdom of God, the wisdom and omniscience of God. God doesn't know what he's talking about when he tells you that you will surely die if you eat of this forbidden fruit. He wants to suggest to Eve that God himself is wrong about what would happen if Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden tree. I think this is a device that we see the devil continuing to use in that he gets people to think that what God calls evil is actually good. And what God calls good is actually evil. It's a direct contradiction. And yet, it's to get us to think and to question God's omniscience and wisdom. As if God, who is the source of all that is good and right and true, is wrong. Isn't that what the world tries to do now? Isn't that what the devil tries to do now? To get us to think that what God is for is what is wrong, and what man is for and the world is for is what right is what is right. And yet, the devil doesn't stop there. He even goes even further in his conversation with Eve to get her to question another thing about God, and that is to question God's own work. To question God's own God's own work. In verse five, the devil adds this phrase. He says, "For God doth know." Now, I think this is interesting because the devil actually admits to Eve that God knows more than Eve and Adam. But there's a silent suggestion here that perhaps God came to this knowledge in the same way that they could come to this knowledge. So the question is, how does God know this, Adam? How does God know this, Eve? And what does God know? For God doth know, verse 5, that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, now we know why God knows this. Because he's God. And because he made the tree. Because he made the world. Because he made Adam and Eve. And because he set the rules. Because he's God. But the devil is suggesting to Eve, how does God know this? How can God know this? Perhaps he once was as they are now. In fact, in the Mormon religion, this is one of the doctrines that they hold to. This is one of the doctrines that was declared by one of their early presidents by the name of Lorenzo Snow, who once stated, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. In essence, that's one of the questions that the devil is posing to Eve. Is God the creator or is God a creature? And if God is a creature, then perhaps he came to this knowledge that he's trying to prevent you from knowing by doing this himself. Again, this is one of the devil's great devices. To bring God down to the level of his creation as if he were no God at all. And don't we see this also in churches? Where we bring God from his exalted position in his heavenly throne to bring him down to our level. 
to make him just another creature like us. As if he only became God by means of the very tree that he was trying to keep from Adam and Eve. And so from the devil's perspective, trying to convince Eve, God was selfishly holding back from her and holding back from her husband what he wanted to hold on to all by himself and all for himself, this knowledge of good and evil that the devil says makes him God. Because he knew, the devil said, that once they ate the fruit, they would be as God themselves. In fact, this is probably the best way to translate this verse. He actually uses the same word for God here as he did in the very first part of this verse. When the devil says, for God, Elohim, doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as, not God's, but as God. Elohim, same word. So the devil says, God knows that the day you eat thereof, you will be as God. And the devil wants Eve to think that this is the real reason why God was holding that tree and that fruit back from her. Because he knew that she would be like him. And so it wasn't out of care for them, but out of care for him. Even out of jealousy and insecurity. And so the, the serpent questions the very nature of God as creator. And once again, isn't this what the devil still does using these devices? To cause us to question the very work of God in getting people to think that there is no other God but themselves. To worship the creature over the creator, including themselves. But then after the devil plants the seeds of doubt and deception in the mind of Eve, guess what happens? The same thing that happens to us. Her own thoughts take over. And now her thoughts lead her to another question. And that is to question God's own worth. To question God's value. To question God's worth. And the true value over the fruit of the tree that was standing before her. Uh, we're then told these familiar words in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now when Eve saw this tree and saw its fruit, as we're told there in verse 6, it doesn't mean that she just glanced at them. It means that she gazed at them. She was inspecting them. You know, just like a fruit inspector, right? Just like you at the grocery store would take an apple or take an orange and you're taking your hand and you're going to look at it. You're going to look for bruises and, and things that, that might taint it, make, make it not taste so sweet or so good. And, and so here she is. She's inspecting the tree, inspecting the fruit more closely and with greater scrutiny as she molds the serpent's words in her mind. Now, we need to remember that there was another tree right there in the middle of the garden besides the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was also in the middle of the garden. Which one was that? The tree of life. But she takes her eyes off of that tree, the tree that was good, and she puts it and fixes them on what was highlighted by the devil instead of God. 
And so what does she determine as she's looking at the tree and as she's looking at the fruit and she sees it with her eyes? She determines, first of all, that the tree was good for food. Now, it's interesting because back in chapter 2, verse 9, this is what was said about all the other trees in the garden. Chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that out of the ground, God, uh, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and what? Good for food. It was good for food. And so now, upon closer examination of this forbidden tree that had this forbidden fruit, she realizes that this tree looks the same as every other tree God had made. It's just as much good for food as the others. With no difference and no distinction. As if God's specific and explicit commandment to not eat of that tree made no difference at all. This is one of the devil's devices. He wants us to see everything the same, with no distinctions, with no differences. I mean, we think about the, the whole alphabet soup of, of sexuality that is going on there, and they want everything to look the same, as if God's word does not distinguish between right and wrong, between truth and error. This is what makes the greatest difference, the word. But again, this is what the devil wants us to see. Everything is the same. And completely ignore the fact that it is God's words and God's commands that do make the difference between what is holy and common and profane. God's word is what gives us the distinction between what is right and what is wrong in this world. So even though, yes, the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was truly food. It was fruit. It was food. It was not good for food because God said so. What else did Eve conclude about the tree and its fruit? <laughs> Verse 6, that it was pleasant to the eyes. That is, it was pleasing. It was desirable. And, and not just to her natural eyes, but even to her spiritual eyes and innermost desires. This, too, is similar to what was said about all of the other trees that God made back in chapter 2, Verse 9. <laughs> Not only were they all good for food, but they were all pleasant to the sight. It's a similar, but a little different. But in verse 9 of chapter 2, it meant that they were delightful in their appearance in an objective way. That is, they were beautiful and pleasant according to God's own standards of beauty and glory. He made them pleasant to the eyes. But now, Eve is convinced that this forbidden fruit is more pleasant to her eyes in a subjective way. That is, they were able to satisfy her own personal standards of beauty and taste other than God's. And again, that's something else that the devil tries to do. He tries to get us to experience discontentment with the things that God gives us that are full of beauty and goodness because he made them that way. And the devil wants us to think about our definition of beauty and glory instead of God's. And to try to get us to crave and to thirst for those things that appeal to our own understanding of goodness. That really is the lust of the flesh, isn't it? The desires of our own hearts. But you know, there was something in the devil's words 
that stirred up an unholy desire in this woman's pure and innocent heart. And we can't fully understand this or explain it, but we know that somehow it did because it caused her to want something other than what God had provided for her. And that was where the temptation was. But then as Eve continues to look on and contemplate the usefulness of this forbidden tree and fruit, she also sees that there in verse 6 that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. And, and she wanted to become wise as God. She came to believe that by eating the fruit of this tree, she would get what God had kept from her. She wanted to be as wise as God. And even though she and Adam would experience the knowledge of good and evil, they would. Any wisdom they gained would be to their shame and disgrace and to ours. These two are devices of the devil after he plants the seeds in doubt, of doubt and deception in our minds about God's word, about God's will, about God's wisdom, about God's work, and even about God's worth. Because when we determine in our own hearts that there's something more valuable and desirable than God, this is how it will always go. The last part of verse 6. She, Eve, took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. More than likely, after she contemplated this fruit and contemplated this tree, the idea of taking the fruit is not just going over, plucking it, caressing it with her hands, looking at it, and then slowly eating it. It was a greedy taking, seizing, sticking it to her mouth and biting it to satisfy her greedy, lustful desire for that fruit that she'd been thinking about and thinking about and thinking about. And as soon as she did that, that temptation turned to sin. She reaches out her hand, takes the fruit, forsaking God and all his goodness to her and eats. But then, what does she else do with that hand? <laughs> she reaches it back out, we're told, to Adam. And with that partially eaten fruit still in her hand, we're told he did eat as well. And from this moment forward, the, get, the devil gives birth to our other two enemies, the fallen world and our fallen flesh, because of the sin committed by Adam and Eve. What we just read here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, through six is what our enemy, the devil, does best and what our enemy, the devil, loves most. He likes to use all the devices and all the deceit he can in order to tempt us and bring us to the point of deliberate disobedience and sin against God. That's what he loves best. That's what he loves most. And so this is where and how it all began. And we need to pray as we go through this series again that the Lord will help us to not be ignorant of these devices of our ancient foe. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the fact that we don't have to be ignorant of the devil and his devices because we have revealed to us all that they are in Scripture. And so, Father, I pray that as we think through the very beginnings of this enmity between the devil and man, through our earliest parents, Adam and Eve, that, that we will already see some of those basic devices that he uses to deceive and to tempt us to sin when he causes us to question your word and your will and your wisdom and your work and even just your value and your worth to us as if there's something better out there than you for us. So Father, I pray that you'll help us to 
not be ignorant of these devices. And then, Lord, to resist the devil, knowing that by your grace, through your strength, through your omnipotent power, he will flee from us so that we might have even greater victory over the world and the flesh and the devil. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.